if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy. The book of 1 Timothy, we are in week two of our series, Healthy Church, and we're looking at what the healthy church looks like and how we can become a healthy church in and of ourselves. Um, but we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 1 this morning. Uh, so if you're a guest here, you're kind of still on the front end of this series. If you're not, you're kind of uh, coming into the second part of this series, which is week two. And if you remember, last week, Paul was writing this letter to Timothy, and one of the things that he put right there up front and center is you need to protect the church. He said, you want, we want to protect the church against false teaching. And if we want to be healthy, we're going to have to make sure that we do guard the church against any false teaching that may try to creep inside. What you're going to see today, though, is that Paul's going to shift from an attitude of protection to an attitude of praise. And it's really interesting how Paul does this. He goes from a mode, if you will, of protection to a mode of praise. In fact, Paul starts talking about the gospel and the reason that you and I need to protect false teachers from coming in and presenting a different gospel to us, namely a gospel such as legalism, licentiousness, whatever the case may be. And as he gets this, this motor rolling of talking about the gospel, it's almost like Paul becomes so overwhelmed with the gospel that he just breaks out in praise. That's what you're going to see here in this particular text this morning. Have you ever been around someone that every time they started talking about Jesus, it was like they couldn't shut up? I mean, there's something, there's something about those people that I aspire to be. I mean, you know who they are. There's people in your life, maybe people in your family, they just start talking about Jesus, they start talking about church, they, like, they start talking about the things of God, and it's, it's hard to get them to hush. They just light up. Uh, when I was thinking about this this week, one person that came to my mind is a longtime member here um, who was a guy by the name of J.T. Williams. Um, many of you might know J.T. J.T. used to sit right back here behind the center camera. Um, J.T. was a member here for over 30 years. Um, also, not only was he a member here, uh, but he uh, almost lived to be 91 years old. Um, he, he passed away a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but if, you, if you're thinking, man, the, J the name J.T. Williams sounds familiar, but I can't put the face to the name. Well, every time you cross over the bridge on Hudson Bridge Road, you're crossing over J.T. Williams Bridge. Um, he's also known as Mr. Eagles Landing. He's the one who had the vision and the dream to come up with the Eagles Landing uh, subdivision and, and developed it and things of that nature. So J.T. was a well-known guy in this area, but J.T. loved Jesus. Now, I was sitting at his funeral, uh, I guess last week now, and as I was listening to all the stories, it was just fascinating to me how well this guy not only ran his race, but how well he finished his race. I mean, just two weeks prior to his passing, he was sending text messages to me saying he is participating in our prayer and fasting. And it was just so, over, it just overwhelmed me because he's 91 years old. He could, have, he could have took a shortcut and just said, hey, I've been there, I've done all of that, I'm not doing it anymore. All right, he could have done that. He could have kind of coasted through the finish line or at least taken some time off. But that wasn't JT. JT pushed through the finish line and finished his race strong. But he loved talking about Jesus. In fact, once you would get him started talking about Jesus, it was hard to get him to stop. I would categorize JT as a healthy Christian. And this week I started to think how healthy Christians are what make healthy churches. If we want to be a healthy church on a corporate capacity, then we have to be healthy Christians on an individual level. Make sense? 
Because we, as the body of Christ, as we grow deeper and deeper and more intimate with God individually, you'll see also that we corporately reap, uh, reap the effect of that. One of the things I want to say right out of the gate here this morning is healthy churches, it's important to remember, are not buildings. All right, we start to think of a healthy church, that means they're, they're not in debt, uh, they have X amount of people, whatever the case may be. That's not what we're talking about today. Healthy churches are not buildings. Healthy churches are people who have been greatly impacted by the grace of God, and now they are impacting others with the very same grace that they have first been impacted by. That's what a healthy church is. It means that we are so overwhelmed by the grace of God that we can't help but go tell people about how good and gracious he has been to us. So where are we headed today? Where are we headed in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17? What's our main goal? Um, where do we want to land a plane? Where are we going today? This is where we're going. A healthy church is overwhelmed by the grace of God. A healthy church is overwhelmed by the grace of God. We said last week that a healthy church guards and protects against false teachers. Today what we're going to see is that a healthy church is overwhelmed by the grace of God. What does that mean? It means that a healthy church doesn't cheapen God's grace by going and sending freely. Thinking, you know what? This God's a God of love. This God's a God of grace. I can go and participate in my sinful endeavors and he's just going to wash me clean with his amazing grace. Will he do that? Yes. But that is a form of licentiousness that Paul warns against in another letter. That we don't have the opportunity to go cheapen his grace by sinning freely. And we also don't have the opportunity to forget the grace of God as if I've received God's grace at salvation, but now I don't need to reflect on that grace. I can kind of move forward because I'm now saved. We talk about this a lot here, that the gospel is not only good news for the individual who doesn't know Jesus to come to know Christ, but the gospel is also something that we as believers continually reflect on as we conform into the likeness of Christ. So we don't cheapen God's grace. We don't forget God's grace. A healthy church remains overwhelmed by the grace that God has given them. There are three simple things that I want you to see that Paul does in this letter to Timothy that, that allows you and I and allows these men and women to be overwhelmed by the grace of God. The first thing I want you to see in this text is this. The grace of God for the present. Paul shows us first the grace of God for the present. This is his own individual service in ministry, working, doing the work that God has called him to do. It says this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. It says, I thank him. You can stop there. If you remember, we talked about this last week if you were here. That Paul's typical strategy or structure for writing a letter is that he would begin with a greeting and then he would transition into really what's called thanksgiving, gratitude, or prayer. Okay, Sometimes simultaneously, sometimes separately, but he would go into a time of thanksgiving and prayer. Well, in this particular letter, he leaves the greeting and jumps right into the meat of the text. Like, I want to urge you to guard against false teachers. And now he's kind of going full circle here, and now he's getting a little bit into... The gratitude part. So Paul never lost his heart of gratitude. He always remained grateful for who God was and what God has done for him. But here he expresses that gratitude a little later in the text. It says in verse 12, I thank him, that's his heart of gratitude, who has given me strength. Again, you can stop. 
You ever heard the phrase, I don't know if it was Adrian Rogers or somebody who says that God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. That's what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that God, the God who calls you will enable you. The God who calls you will empower you. The God who calls you will make you able to do the service that he has called you to do. That you might not feel equipped at first, but if he called you, you go and do it and he will equip you to accomplish the things in which he has called you to do. In this case, he'll give you strength. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Paul's saying, this is the grace of God in the present, that I get to serve God. Some of us think that we have to serve God. So we show up to serve God because we feel like we must serve him. And there is a bit of this that says, hey, if you want to be obedient to Jesus, then you should be serving him. There is a bit of that, but that should never be the motive of the heart of the believer. The motive of our heart should be what Paul says, I get to do this. Because God has called me out of who I once was into a new life in Christ, I get to use my gifts to serve his church. See, few things stunned Paul more than the amazing grace of God. He, in fact, he could not get over what God had done for him. I mean, God called a murderer and made him a minister. The way that Warren Wearsby would say, some of you remember the great author Warren Wearsby, he would say it this way, God called a persecutor of the church to become a preacher to the church. And Paul couldn't get over the fact that God would do that to him. The fact that God would call him who was murdering Christians to now ministering to Christians or persecuting Christians to now preaching to Christians was something that just overwhelmed Paul. He could not get enough of the goodness and the grace of God. He was overwhelmed by God's amazing grace. See, church, this, the thing that you and I need to know about this, this is kind of the application to kind of let it hit home a little bit, is something that you and I need to know is that serving God is a great privilege. Serving God is a great privilege. Now, this great privilege comes with great responsibility. We need to understand that. But first, we have to understand that serving God in any capacity within the local church is a great privilege. See, Paul knew that he didn't deserve the opportunity to go into impact lives for the gospel of Jesus. In fact, he could not believe that God would want to use him to do just that. Pa Paul was overwhelmed with the fact that God wanted to use his gifts, Paul's gifts, to, to, to go and invest into the lives of other people to help them become the men and the women that they are to be in Christ. Paul couldn't shake the fact that this is something that he gets to do. And you and I, we have to understand that just like Paul was given gifts, you and I are given gifts too. And just like Paul used his gifts for the sake of the local church, you and I should be using our gifts for the sake of the local church too. If you and I long to be a healthy church, if Eagles Landing is going to be the church that God wants Eagles Landing to be, it means that on an individual level, we step into the gifts that God has given us and we start using them for his church, for his glory, so that the gospel can continue to advance. And Paul was saying, I can't get over the fact that God would want to use me to do that, that he would give me a gift that I could use for his sake and his church for his kingdom. See, church family, serving God is a great privilege. It's something we all understand, those of us who have served him in this capacity, not only is it a great privilege, but serving God comes with great strain. 
it comes with great strain. You're going to be serving people who are not going to say thank you. You're going to be serving people who are going to dismiss and discredit everything that you do. You're going to be serving people, quite frankly, uh, that will roll their eyes at, at your particular service. You're going to be serving people that will criticize you. Now, that, that shouldn't be how it functions, but quite frankly, that's how it does function a lot of times. So it comes with great strain. So what does Paul say? Because he's aware of this. He says, I thank him who has given me what? He's given me strength. See, God gives strength to his children when they minister. God knows that ministry is going to be hard, and Paul knows that ministry is going to be hard. But this is why Paul says he gave us the strength to actually do it. Paul's saying, hey, there's going to be moments when you're serving the church where you feel really, really weak. But that's okay, because that's when the strength of God is going to kick in in full throttle, and he's going to do through you what he and he only can do through you. There's going to be moments where you feel insufficient, I don't know if I know enough or have enough or have been you know, educated enough to be able to fill that particular task. But that's okay. Because what God is wanting us to see and what Paul is wanting us to see is even when we are insufficient, he is all sufficient. And, and, and everything we need is who he is and he'll provide that to us. Paul's saying, hey, there's going to be moments in ministry when you are tired, when you are wore out, when you grow weary. And what you need to know is the strength of God kicks him full throttle in those moments. He and he alone will begin to lift you up. And maybe you're a man or a woman in here today. And you know what? Quite frankly, you need the strength of God. You've been doing this ministry maybe in and of your own strength, and you are on the verge of burnout. And the Lord is using today to remind you that if you continue to do this in and of your own strength, you will burn out. But if you turn it over to God and you allow him to do the work in and through you, then that's how you avoid burnout. Maybe you're here today and you've been parenting a preteen. Can I get a witness? And you are thinking, listen, unless the Lord gives me strength, it's over. And the Lord's saying to you today, don't quit, don't grow weary in doing good, trust that in due season I will give you strength and you will reap a harvest. Maybe there's a friend or a child that's in your life that's flirting with sin and you're watching this and you've warned against this and you've tried to intervene in this capacity, but quite frankly they continue to flirt and to cuddle with the sin that's in their life. And you're sitting here on the edge of your seat thinking, you know what, well I can't intervene because I don't want to push them away. But at the same time, I can't sit by idly and watch because they're going to waste away that way too. And that's a tension that we often find ourselves in. And God's saying, that's okay, because my strength, my grace is sufficient for you. And my power will even be made perfect in your weakness. Maybe there's a neighbor or a coworker that's in your life that you know that the Spirit of God has revealed to you that they do not know Jesus. And you're thinking, you know what? I know the Spirit wants me to invite that man or woman to church. I know that the Spirit wants me to invite that man or woman into a relationship with God. But quite frankly, I've avoided doing that because I don't know enough or I don't feel equipped enough or whatever the case may be. Ma'am, sir, you need the strength of God. And he provides that to you through Christ Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you're stuck in a relationship or maybe in a work environment, quite frankly, that does not honor God. And you're thinking, if I only had the strength to get out of this situation, God is saying to you today, if you rest in me, if you cling to me, I will give you the strength 
to get yourself out of that situation. Listen, we must understand this. The same God who saved you is the same God who will strengthen you to do the work he's called you to do. You can rest assured of that. There's a promise in scripture that's found in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. I want you to listen to these verses or this verse because it is a powerful verse when it comes to this that we're talking about today. It says this, fear not, you don't have to fear, fear not because I'm gonna be with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. Listen to what he says. I will say it. I will strengthen you. Say it again. I will strengthen you. That's not a happenstance, if then clause. No, that is a promise from God. As you remain faithful to him and he remains faithful to you, he will strengthen you. He says, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. See, Paul found his strength in the amazing grace of God. He was overwhelmed that God would want to use him at all. But he understood that if God's going to use me, like he says he wants to use me, that I must rest in the fact that he too will strengthen me to do the work that he has called me to do. Pointing others to Jesus and using his gifts to serve the church gave Paul life. It's why he existed. It was, there was nothing he would rather do than do this. It gave him purpose. And he understood that getting to do this was a privilege because it was an act of God's grace to him. Now, sir, do you feel like you're functioning with the purpose that God has given you in your own heart? Like, do you feel like that you are serving to the capacity that the Lord wants you to serve? Can you say today, you know what? I too am overwhelmed by the grace of God and I see it and how it comes out and how I serve the church. See, the grace of God overwhelmed Paul in the present and allowed him to serve faithfully the church of Christ. But there's a second thing I want you to see this morning. Not only the grace of God for the present service, but what about the grace of God for the past? Salvation. The grace of God for the past, salvation. In other words, what Paul was going to do is he's going to say, hey, let me tell you why I'm overwhelmed by the grace of God. I want to show you what God has saved me from. I want to show you the, how the grace of God was good to me in the past. He says it this way in verse 13. It says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. He says, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly and in unbelief. And he says, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Like I said at the beginning, Paul last week was talking about protecting the church. Now what Paul is doing is he's talking about celebrating the gospel. He shifts from, hey, let's protect the gospel with all of our hearts and with all of our might. And now he comes over here to say, hey, we also need to celebrate the gospel with all of our hearts and with all of our mights. Because you and I, we wouldn't be able to gather together as the saints of God if it weren't for what Christ had done for us on the cross of Calvary. I love what Paul is doing here when you read verses 1 through 17 holistically. You just read them straight for what they are. What you can't help but see is that Paul becomes overwhelmed a little bit with the grace of God to him in the past. It's almost as if Paul was having a moment. How many of you, my cultured friends, know what a praise break is? Yes, come on, sister. 
Like, yes, some of you, you don't know what a praise break is. I want you to YouTube it, all right? YouTube it today, what a praise break is, because it's a really interesting thing. But, but if I can say this, I want to say it this way. If you go to my charismatic churches, or maybe if you even go to my more African-American black churches, you step into them, you're going to see what's called a praise break. And what happens is the preacher is in zone. Like he is in the zone. He's preaching his heart out, and he's getting feedback from the congregation. They're feeding him, so as he gets fed, he just keeps giving it back. And it's just it's like the cyclic pattern. They preach to him. He preaches back to them. They preach to him. And before you know it, the organ's over here. Dun, dun, dun. And all of a sudden, people start to stand up. They, you know, they give a little hallelujah. They start to dance around a little bit, and they, they get loose. They get loose. It's called a praise break. All of a sudden, we are so locked in, in the zone with Jesus, I didn't even know you were sitting by me. I just had a moment. You know, I just had a moment. Some of us, we need a moment. You know what I mean? Some of us, we need to get in the privacy of our own home, maybe in the shower, and you just have a praise break tonight. You put on some Christian music, you just go dancing for Jesus, all right? Because you're you scared to do that out here. Maybe you'll be okay to do that in there. But that's what Paul says. He says, man, I was a blasphemer. That means I said things about God. And they weren't true. He says, I was a persecutor of the church. Paul found delight and joy in making the lives of Christians difficult. Kind of takes us back to Acts chapter 8. Well, Paul was standing in the crowd. And Stephen was being stoned to death, the world's first martyr for his faith. And Paul starts to draw pictures of, man, I remember not only being in the crowd watching Stephen die for his faith, but I was one sitting right there up front and center chanting, cheering them on, keep stoning him, let him die. Some commentators say not only was he chanting, but he was participating. I think he was participating by chanting. And then he goes further to say not only did he do that with Stephen, but he found great delight in finding who the believers in Jesus Christ were, mothers and fathers, and dragging these Christians out of their homes and then throwing them into prison. That's what he lived for. Acts chapter 9 actually says it this way, that he was breathing murderous threats against the disciples of Christ. That's who Paul was before he knew Jesus. After he came to know Christ, he tells us more about who he was in Acts chapter 22. He says, I would throw Christians into prison and I would even beat them. And then he finds great delight, not, not now as a believer, but then he says, I found great delight in cheering Stephen's, or the stoning of Stephen until I saw blood drip from his body onto the ground. Paul says, this is who I was. And then he says this, but I received Mercy, because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me when the faith, or with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. We've talked about this before, but mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. As a child of God, you get mercy. Because you don't get, let me say this the right way, you get mercy because what you deserve is hell and you don't get it. But you get grace because you get heaven and you don't deserve it. Follow me? That's the difference between grace and mercy. I love how Kent Hughes says this in his commentary. 
He says, God met him, talking about Paul, in his miserable, sinful, self-righteous ignorance, and he mercied him. That's literally how the word translates, that, you, that you've been mercied. Let me ask you this morning, ma'am, sir, have you been mercied in your life? Have you been mercied? Where you've come into contact with the mercy of God in such a way that changed you forever. Have you been mercy? Do you remember when you were little and you would aggravate your bigger cousin? Or maybe your bigger sibling? And that cousin or that brother would put you in a headlock and rear back his fist because you've been aggravating him all day long. And you know that based on your aggravation, what you deserve is to be punched in the face. So what did you say? Mercy, 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 mercy. Why did you cry for mercy? Because you were asking your big brother, your big cousin, not to give you what you deserve. And what you deserve because of your aggravation is to be punched in the face. But if you cry for mercy, maybe he won't give it to you. That's exactly what mercy is. And Paul says, this is what I got from Christ Jesus. What I deserved is eternal separation from God in a literal place called hell because I was born into the world both by nature and by choice, a sinner. And that forever separated me from God. And what I now deserve is hell. But I'm crying out for the mercy of God not to give me that. What I deserve is to lose my friends and to lose my family because of the sin that creeps up in my life and the way that I respond to them and react in difficult circumstances and situations. That's what I deserve. But I cry out for the mercy of God. Don't give me that. And Paul says, this is what I did. He says, I cried out for mercy but because of mercy, by the way, mercy is not a thing. Mercy is a person. He says, I cried out for mercy because what I deserved is not what I get. What I deserved is death. What I deserve is hell. What I deserve is a grave. What I deserve is eternal separation from the Father forever and forever. But because of Christ, what I deserve is not what I get. That's good news, church family. It's good news that you and I Know that what we deserve because of our sin is forever to be separated from God. But because we place our faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, we receive mercy when we give him our lives. What we deserve is not necessarily what we get. You know, I started to think about this this week. I can see God's mercy in, in my salvation. That's what Paul's talking about here. But you know what? We also see God's mercy in our sanctification. As we continue to look more and more like Jesus, we continue to see the mercy of God. Lamentations says it this way, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, praise God. His mercies, they never come to an end. Verse 23 of Lamentations 3 says, they are new every morning. And then he says, great is your faithfulness. Sometimes in life, there are days where we grow weary there are days where we are flat out exhausted. There are moments in life where life is really, really difficult and really, really hard. As we walk through and journey through the life that we are as believers in Jesus Christ, you know just like I know that there are some dark days before us. As Christians, we will suffer. The life of following Jesus is not one that's all you know, feathers and, and, and happy. We're gonna suffer as children of God. And sometimes this darkness lingers and it doesn't go away. As we continue to look more like Jesus, we make mistakes and we mess up and we blow it and we fumble at life. We all are guilty of that. 
And what we deserve in those moments is to lose those friends that we've fumbled with. What we deserve in those moments is to lose our family because we've messed up against them. What we deserve is to lose things because of our own misfits and uh, deficiencies. But God reminds us of his powerful promise that my mercies are new for you every single morning. And I believe, like you should believe, that Paul could not get over the fact that this is how good the grace of God was to him. That he saved him from his sin and gave him new life in Christ forever and ever. And Paul couldn't get over that. So we see that the grace of God is good for the present. In our service, we see that the grace of God is also good for our past. It's good for our salvation. The third thing I want you to see today is the grace of God for purpose. The grace of God for purpose. That's our mission. We just talked about a moment ago what we are saved from. We're saved from eternity in hell, spent away from God the Father forever and ever because of our sin. Because of the work of Christ, we don't have to suffer that. We've received mercy from him. Now I want to talk what we're saved for. Now that we are new children of God, now that we belong to him, now that we've surrendered to, to the lordship of Jesus Christ, now what are we saved for? It says it this way in verse 15. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world. Now, you can stop there. Christ Jesus eternally existed. We all know that, right? But he came into the world at his incarnation. That's what we're talking about here. He came into the world, um, but he always eternally existed. It said, this saying is trustworthy and deserving, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world. Okay, so what did Christ Jesus come into the world to do? It said, he tells us, to save sinners. Saving sinners has always been and will always be Jesus' mission. Do you understand that? that? That's his mission. The reason he came to live and to dwell among us was so that he could save us. It was the mission of God, and it's supposed to be the mission of us, too, now that we are in him. It says the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and then he says, of whom I am the foremost some of your translations say, of whom I am chief. Paul says, I'm the chief of all sinners. You know, every child of God that's in this room, that walks this planet, should have this attitude. If I were to ask you this morning, hey, who is the greatest sinner that you know? The first name that comes to your head should not be someone like Adolf Hitler. The first name that comes to your head should be, it's me. The greatest sinner that Trey knows is Trey. I'm more aware of Trey's sin than I am anyone else's sin. That should be said about you as well. Ted, that you're more aware of Ted's sin than you are anybody else's. Jordan, you're more aware of Jordan's sin than you are anyone else's. And we could go all around the room, right Vic? More aware of Vic's sin than anyone else's. The greatest sinner that I know is me. This is a sign of spiritual maturity in the Christian life when you realize who you really are and you realize that God met that person with his amazing grace. And as a result of God meeting me with his grace, now I am forever changed 
as a result of that. That's the beauty of God's grace. God's grace is forever changing us. We're no longer the men or the women that we used to be because now we've been purchased, we've been bought by the blood of Christ. We now belong to him. We have a new identity. And as a, as a man or a woman with a new identity, we also have a new purpose. We don't live to fulfill the purpose of me. We live to, to, to fulfill the purpose of Christ who is now in me. Well, what is that? It says in verse 16, but I received mercy. Why? Why would you get mercy? Well, he tells us, for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, the chief of all sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, and the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now you can see why this was a praise break for Paul. Paul cannot get over the amazing grace of God. And he says, you don't know why Jesus saved me? This is what Paul is saying. You want to know why Jesus saved the chief of all sinners? Do you really want to know why Jesus saved the very man who found himself persecuting Christians long ago? Do you want to know why God saved the guy who sat there and watched Stephen get stoned and participated in that stoning by cheering the men on who were stoning him? Do you want to know why God saved me? Paul says, God saved me because I wanted there to be little to no doubt that if he saved me, he can save you. And it doesn't matter what your past might look like. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic background. It doesn't matter if your parents were misfits and outcasts and you inherited them as a misfit and outcast. It doesn't matter who you are, where you came from, how bad your baggage is. If God can save Paul, Paul say, God can save you. He can save you. Kayla and I had an opportunity this week to meet with some families. And these families, the stories were incredible incredible and I just sat there overwhelmed by the grace of God there was a man from Maine this man was a heroin addict and he said that because he was addicted to heroin he would go and he would steal possessions in order that he could get money so that he could pay for more heroin so he stole $15,000 worth of possessions from his own family one of his family members reported him. The police came, investigated, and found out that this man indeed had stolen above $15,000 worth of jewelry and other merchandise from this particular family member and now would forever have to pay the consequence of that. They arrested him and threw him in jail. And as this man is, is serving his jail time, he has to go to court, he goes to court, and the judge says to him, listen, it's been six months since you've been in jail and you've done okay. If you will go to a specific church's drug and alcohol addiction program. And you will walk through it, you'll participate in it, you won't get in any trouble, your record will be clean, whatever, then we'll, we'll completely wipe your account. And you'll be forever let go of these charges. You won't have to pay a dime of it. So that guy said, I went back to my jail cell, and I thought, I'm not going to a church, I'm an atheist. I'm an atheist, I was a heroin addict. I'm not going to a church's drug addiction program. And he said, day after day went by, and I started to come to my senses. Why not? If it gets me out of here, I don't believe in God. I can just go through six months of this program and be done, not have to pay any of it back, and then I can be free. So the guy says, sounds like a good deal. Sign me up. He goes to this church's drug addiction program. He starts to walk through it, and he goes to his very first Bible study. 
And the man said, you know, I went to my first Bible study and I almost wanted to chuckle. I wanted to laugh the whole time because these people really believed in this Jesus. He said, but I thought to myself, I have six months in this program to prove them wrong. So I only have a Bible. That's the only book that they gave me. I'm going to use the Bible over the course of six months to show them that there is no God. So I went back to my room. They gave me a room. I had to stay in a house and do chores and all this stuff. So I went back to my room, and I started to develop my plan. And he said, and I must admit to you, my plan was really, really solid. He said, and then one night, with my lamp over my desk, it was dark and it was late. It might have been the wee hours of the morning. He said, I was sitting there writing, developing my strategy and plan for how I was going to prove to this group of men that there is no God. And he said, and it was like the light came on. And I started to wrestle with what I was writing. And I started to challenge myself, do I really even believe this? And he started to recognize that the God that he had rejected and stiff arm and resisted for so long really does exist. And he said, it was there that night that I just broke down and I surrendered my life to Jesus. He said, man, I didn't even know what to pray or what to say, but I knew this. I was a sinner. I lived my life against the life of the church. And I knew that I wanted salvation in Christ Jesus. And that's all I did. I said, God, I need you to save me. I need you to save me. He said, and I knew instantly that that night I became a child of God. Do you know what that man is doing today? Six years after he got out, six years, he is now the director of the very drug and addiction program with that specific church that he got saved in. Listen. God is using him, and he's using his past now that he's met the grace of God to now minister to other people who think and do the similar things that he used to think and do. And God is using him, give him purpose through the local church to reach men, uh, and to free men from their sins and to find Christ Jesus. We also got to talk to a lady, sweet, sweet lady. She said, I was 50 years old, and when I was 50 years old, I learned that I had breast cancer. I've got breast cancer. And she said, you know what I did with this? I've never drunk alcohol. But you know what I, found, I, I did when I found out I had breast cancer? I turned to vodka. She said, I don't know why I turned to vodka, but I turned to vodka. And she said, and I started to drown myself. I drank and I drank and I drank and I drank. I beat breast cancer. And you know what I did to celebrate beating breast cancer? She said, I went and bought more vodka. And that's how we celebrated and she said, and I was becoming so miserable and so empty every single day. I was turning to this thinking that it was going to satisfy. I was turning to this thinking it would fulfill. I was turning this thinking that it would pull me through these difficult moments. But quite frankly, I was drowning under it every single day. And she said, I got so tired of the woman that I am. She is now 58. I got so tired of the woman that I have become that I went to my youngest daughter, who was also cutting me off, and she said, I told my oldest daughter, all right, my, 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 young, my oldest daughter, yeah. She said, I told my daughter, I want you to take me to the hospital. I want you to admit me. And I'm going to stay in this hospital for six days and I'm going to detox. I'm done. I'm tired of being this miserable. I'm tired of feeling this empty. So she went for six days into the hospital and she detoxed and she came out of her detox. And she said, I feel better, but I don't feel complete. I feel better but I don't feel complete. And she said, and here's what I started to notice. I would pass somebody on the road and they would smell like alcohol 
and her senses would kick in and she would crave it. She would go pick up food from a restaurant and walk in and just the sounds as well as the, the, uh, the, the, noise, the noises as well as the scent started to, to, to basically go to war against her flesh, calling her, come back to me, come back to me, come back to me. And she said, I went to my daughter and I told her, I don't know why, but I told her, if I continue to live like this, I will go back. This is my idol. This is what I love. This is what I've given myself to. And if I don't do something about it, I will go back. And she asked her daughter, she said, listen, I've got to admit myself into a drug and alcohol program. Again, with the same local church. She said, I don't know why I need to go, but I need to go so that I don't go back to to the, to the vodka bottle. So she went. And she said it was through the Bible studies at that particular location that she too came to know Jesus as her Lord and her Savior. And she said, now I understand why I felt better, but I didn't feel complete. Because now I feel complete. Because all I need is all I have. And that's Jesus. I don't have a home. I stay in this house. I don't have a bunch of possessions. I live with a group of women. All I do every single day is get up and go to Bible study and make it through a day. But I feel more peace than I've ever felt before in my life. And she said, you know what happened? About two years after coming to know Christ, I'm now 60 years old. And I had to go to the doctor because I wasn't feeling good. And they discovered that I had lung cancer. And she said, I have lung cancer. And I went to my house and I prayed to God. And she said, you know what God revealed to me through prayer? He revealed to me that I'm giving you this cancer because the last time you went through breast cancer, you went to vodka. And now you got a chance to prove to everyone around you that this time, all I need is Jesus. And she said, I beat lung cancer. And I beat lung cancer through my relationship with Jesus. If I would have died of lung cancer, I would have died happier than I've ever been. Because I have Jesus. And the one thing that this world cannot take from me is who I now am in Christ Jesus. You know what she's doing today? She's still at that same home. She's investing her life into other women who are walking a very similar road that she walked. And she's showing them that they too can find their way out through the person of Christ. Ma'am, sir, you are here today. And maybe you think you have too much baggage for God to save you. Maybe you think you've made way too many mistakes for God to save you. Maybe you think, you know what, if you know what I've done, then you would know why I'm the one who's the chief of all sinners. You're the very man, the very woman that God wants. Because in you and through you, if you will surrender, God can give you purpose and a new identity to where now you can live your life making a difference in in other people's lives who think just like you. So I'm going to ask you to do this morning, if you're here today, And you would say, Trey, you know what? I feel better, but I'm not complete. Because I don't know Christ. I'm going to ask you to do something very bold. I want to ask you right where you are to simply lift up your hand. Say, Trey, that's me. These people in this room, they're not going to judge you. They're going to celebrate with you. Is there anybody in here who would say, you know what? I don't know Jesus, and I need to know him today, okay? Okay, two in the balcony. Listen you too can know the very same Christ that saved Paul. You too can be overwhelmed by the grace of God. And you too can have more purpose to live than you've ever had in the history of your life when you come to know him. Today, we're going to give you a chance to surrender your life to Jesus. Our staff, our prayer team, they're going to come forward. 
right now, they're going to go ahead and come up. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet right where you are. And if you're here today and you're one of those who raised your hand, I don't know Jesus. We would love for you to be so bold and so courageous to come in to talk to one of these people. These people are ready and they're equipped to help you come to know Christ. But secondly, secondly, listen, there are some of you, you know Jesus. But quite frankly, you're not finishing the race strong. The grace of God, uh, you would say it overwhelms you, but somewhere along the line, you've quit serving the church. The grace of God, you would say, overwhelms you, but somewhere along the line, you've lacked purpose and you've lacked true meaning. Maybe today you can come back to him. What I'm going to do is I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask you to trust the Spirit's prompting in your life. Listen, this isn't the time to leave. This is the time to respond to the gospel of Jesus. This is the time to answer God's call on our individual lives. So let's pray and let's put our yes on the table and trust that God wants to work both in us and through us. God, we come to you this morning and we do pray that you will work in a way that only you can. That those who don't know Jesus will come to know Christ today. That you would use this to call men and women to a place of repentance and surrender to you. And those of us who do know you, that you allow this to be used as an opportunity for us to see that you can use us too, that you can give us purpose and a mission that's worth achieving and working for. And God, I pray that you would do your work your way. To the man, to the woman that's in here who thinks, you know what, I'm too far out there for God to save me. Remind us that nobody is too far from the stretch of God's, from the stretch of your reach. You can reach them and you want to reach them. I pray that you would save them today. It's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.